This is Sam Anderson, lead pastor at Central Church. Thank you for listening to the Central Church Podcast. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And to keep up with everything happening in our faith community, visit centralchurch.cc. So we're continuing our series today that we're calling How to Neighbor. And it's been a really, really awesome series. We're in week three of it. Next week is week four where we're going to kind of land the plane. But in week one, we talked about our perspective. And we said that as a Christ follower, to be a good neighbor, to be the neighbor that God has called us to be, our perspective must be love. Love is paramount to everything else. Everything needs to be viewed and framed and filtered through love. Everything. And so we said our ultimate perspective is love. And we said that, uh, you know, when, when they asked Jesus in Matthew, they said, Jesus, what's the most important thing? He says, love God and love people. He says, that's the most important thing. That's, that's paramount. That's tippy top, right? That's what we need to chase after. And then in week two, we, we got this whole thing nice and packaged with alliteration. So it's all P words. And uh, the, in week two, we talked about protocol. What is our protocol as a Christ follower? What is our protocol as a good neighbor? What does it take to be a good neighbor to people? And we said that our protocol is service, as outlined in Scripture. Our automatic should be service. Our perspective should be love, and our protocol should be service. We should be others-focused. Our whole life, it shouldn't be our world and everyone else is just living in it, right? We should be focused on other people. And so today, what we're going to look at is our position, where, where, where sort of we stand, but not really where we stand, but who we stand with. And the reason I say it that way is because I get asked probably once, twice, sometimes even three times a week where I stand on things. I get asked this question all the time. Sam, where do you stand on this? Where does the church stand on this? And I guess it's because I'm a pastor and I'm like, a, like an authority of scripture and things like that, I don't, whatever. But I get asked that question a lot. Sam, where do you stand on things? Where do you stand on this? Where do you stand on Trump's latest decree and action and debacle and all the things that are in the news? Where where do you stand on that? What are your thoughts? What's the church's stance on all of this? Or where do I stand on, um, you know, regarding people living together before they get married? Sam, what's your stance? What does the Bible say? What is your interpretation of the Bible? How do you see how all that stuff works? What's your stance on that? Sam, where do you stand on abortion and, 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 and divorce and alcohol and gay marriage, and homosexuality. Sam, where do you stand on these things? Where do I stand regarding Muslims, and immigrants, and foreigners in general, people who are not born here, and, but coming here, and where do you stand on the policies, and the procedures, and the government, and Washington, and all that? Sam, where do you stand on all of this? And when every time, every single time I get asked this question, I struggle with it. I fumble over my words, and I'm like, like, Sam, is your brain working? I'm like, I just continue to fumble through it. And, and it's not because I'm afraid, and it's not because I'm timid. If you've met me, you know that's the least of, of truth. It's not because I'm timid. It's not, be, not because I'm unsure of my feelings, and it's not be, because I'm unsure of my beliefs. I think what trips me up so much about that question, about Sam, where do you stand on this? Where do you stand on that? I think what trips me up so much is the intent behind the question. And this is not always true, but more often than not, essentially what someone is asking me is, do you agree with me or do you not agree with me? That's what they want to know. They want to know, do you agree with my beliefs or do you disagree with my beliefs? 
It's very, very sort of, sort of self-centered in, in that question. Now, listen, please, please listen. Everyone listen, please. If you have asked me this recently, I am not talking to you, okay, specifically. Because I'm not kidding when I say I, I get asked this like three, four times a week. So it's multiple, multiple people. So this is not directed at anyone. It's not directed at the most recent person that asked me this, okay? So if that's you and you know who you are, please don't take offense. Don't think that I'm just like out to get you or gunning for you or whatever. But seriously, every time I get asked this, I fumble over it because I'm, 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 I'm torn by the answers. I'm torn by what to say and how to say it. Sam, where do you stand on this? And so I had some real clarity in this question, when I was reading a book, I read this book back in February, and it was probably one of the best books I've read all year. And it's unbelievable. If you are looking for a book, if you just finished one or you're ready to start one or whatever, this book will change your life. It's called Tattoos on the Heart. I'm giving you a chance to type that or write that because it is that good. It's called Tattoos on the Heart. It's by this guy named Greg Boyles, or Boyle, not Boyles, those are bad. Greg Boyle. His name is Greg Boyle, and uh, he's a priest in L.A., and um, so we'll forgive him for that. But he is, um, I'm just kidding. He's an incredible man. And uh, he, start, he works in L.A. with gangs and, uh, in like the most uh, concentrated area for gang violence and gang activity and all this. And so what Father Greg did, what they call, they call him G because he's dealing with, you know, homeboys and homegirls is what he calls them in the books. And uh, so he's dealing with these people and he has this ministry for rehabilitation and reconciliation. He takes these people out of the gangbanger life and tries to assimilate them back into the ebb and flow of natural culture and getting them plugged in with resources, with education, with jobs. Because many of these people drop out of school in like middle school and start gangbanging. And that, so that's the only life they know. That's the only family they know. And so he takes these people and tries to bring redemption into their life. And so he started this company, this parent organization that he calls Homeboy Industries. And in Homeboy Industries, they have like a bakery, they have like a screen printing shop, they have all kinds of different services, they have like a, a graffiti removal company, they have all these different things that go through, and it's all these different businesses, and so what they do is he takes rival gang members and places them in the same workspace. So you can understand that this dude has a very interesting life, has a very interesting story, but his story of compassion and love and grace and empathy and forgiveness. I mean, in that book, I literally laughed out loud and I literally cried tears. I mean, it's an unbelievable book. But when he, when he was talking about this, in the framework of gangs, he said something. And since I don't work necessarily with gangs very often, I took what he said and I applied it to my ministry context and where I am in life. And he said this that was absolutely incredible. He says, it's harder to demonize the other when you know them personally. It's harder to demonize the other when you know them personally. He was saying it, these two rival gang members say this is gang blue and this is gang red. If gang blue sees someone in gang red, they don't question anything. They pull out a gun and start shooting. They're the other. They're the enemy. They're the bad guy. I'm the good guy. They're the bad guy. Us versus them, right? And so he takes the blue and the red and puts them together, and the blue realizes that the red is a son. The red is a husband or a wife and has kids and has family and has feelings and has strengths and has fears, has struggles. And so when he brings the humanity into it, he says it's almost impossible for you to demonize the other when you know them personally. And so Father Greg said this, and it, it, it absolutely shifted my framework for how I view life and how I approach all these what's your stance on this discussions. And it's incredible. He says this, he says, it's not so much where you stand, 
but it's who you stand with. It's not so much where you stand, but it's who you stand with. And when he said this, I was like, that's fireworks going off in my brain, right? It was incredible. I was like, whoa, that's it. That's it. That's Whoa! And so what I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes sort of talking through that and understanding that because today we're talking about position. And we're asking the question, who do we stand with? Who do we stand with as a Christ follower? Who do we stand with as a good neighbor? How, how do we go through this thing? What should, what should shape our perspective? What should shape our protocol? What should shape our position of who we stand with rather than where we stand on things. And so I, I want us to just sort of remove some of the apprehension and some of the barriers that you've already put up saying, whoa, right? And just open yourself up to be spoken to by God this morning. Because I believe that God is, is all over this. And I think it can radically and drastically impact our lives. And so let's pray together and then we'll jump in to God's word. Let's pray. God, Thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the time of worship. Thank you for the time that we got to practice our generosity. And God, thank you for the time of community, that we got to have the best donuts in Metro Detroit and some coffee, and we got to hang out with each other. And now, God, as we pause and we, we reflect and we open your word, I pray that it would speak truth to us. I pray that you would illuminate these scriptures in a new way, a fresh way, that would ignite something inside of us to be the best Christ follower that we can possibly be that we would continually place you at the center of our lives and chase after you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. All right, so something interesting. The book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the, the four gospels. Are you guys aware that they're referred to as the gospels? Gospel means good news. Essentially, these four books tell the story of Jesus, right? And so if you open your Bible and you go about, I don't know, 60% of the way through, there's a blank page in the middle, that's the separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That blank page represents about 400 years. It's called the intertestamental period. And so it's after the Old Testament, before the New Testament. Well, the New Testament launches with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books tell the story of Jesus. Essentially, they tell the same story. And so if you just picked up the Bible for the first time, started reading in Matthew, and you finished it, and you're like, all right, sweet. I read a book of the Bible. I'm going to start with, you know, Mark. And you start reading, you'd be like, wait a second. This is the same thing. I'm going to go to the next one. This is, what's going on here? Is this a trick, right? It could be a little confusing, but here's the deal. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the same story, but they're each written from a different perspective, and they're each written with a different audience in mind. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's really actually interesting, and it helps shape the way that they tell stories, the way that they talk about Jesus. So the book of Matthew, which is the first one, this book was written for Jews. It was written for the Jewish people. And so the way that they paint a picture of Jesus, the way they describe Jesus, all the stories about Jesus are painting Jesus as the Messiah. It's Jesus Messiah. The book of Matthew talks about Jesus Messiah. So if there's an instance with Jesus, they paint him as the Messiah because the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, are waiting for their Messiah to come, right? And so they're pa Matthew's painting this picture of this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the Messiah, so everything Matthew talks about paints Jesus in that light and in that picture. And then you have Mark, which is the next book. That was written to the Romans. The intended audience for the book of Mark was the Romans. And so whenever they talk about Jesus in Mark, you'll notice the stories are a little bit different. They're a little bit different because they paint Jesus in a different perspective. They paint Jesus as Jesus the emperor because that's the language that the, that the Romans understand. 
That's the culture that the Romans get. That Jesus is this emperor coming on a white horse to return and, you know, all these different things. And so they paint a lot of imagery using that in the book of Mark for us to understand in that way. And then you have the book of, let's see, Matthew, Mark, Luke. You have the book of Luke. Luke was a doctor by, by trade and by profession. And so Luke takes a more educated sort of um, scholastic approach to Jesus. He paints Jesus as this like intelligent, logical thinker who can respond to things in this way and it's very poetic and all this stuff. And so the book of Luke paints Jesus in that fashion. And then you got the book of John. The book of John was written 90 years later. The book of John wasn't written until 90 AD, which is crazy to think about that it was like almost 100 years later and then the book of John begins circulating. But the book of John was written for a universal audience. He just kind of collects all these stories and says, all right, this is Jesus. This is the story of Jesus. And so it's important to know these things when you start to read the Bible. Because this is, a, this is how a lot of people look at it and go, see, the Bible contradicts itself. This says he said it. That says the other person said it and blah, blah, blah. No, it's all telling the same story. It's just from different perspectives for different audiences with different intentions. Does that make sense? Some of you are like, what? Others of you are like, okay, Sam, get on with it. So I'll get on with it. So... In the book of Matthew, we spent week one looking at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, where the, they're, they're debating with Jesus and they're talking with Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what's the most important thing, right? You remember this. And he said, well, the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he said, Jesus says the most important thing is love God and love people. Well, today... The reason they did this, Jesus answers the story because, again, Matthew is trying to show Jesus' authority. He's painting a picture of Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah knows this, and what he's doing is he's quoting Scripture from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. That was already written in the law. Jesus just regurgitates it for them. And it's showing that he's the Messiah. He knows the law. He knows the Scriptures. He knows all this stuff. Well, Luke also records this story, but it's in a different light. And so I want to spend this morning sort of looking at how Luke approaches it. And so in the book of Luke, chapter 10, starting in verse 25, it says this. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. So it's the same idea. It says the same thing, except he emphasizes and highlights that it's an expert from the law. So this is a lawyer talking to Jesus, right? And he says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Again, taking a very educated, scholastic approach. They're having a high intellect conversation. More than Jesus just answering because he's the Messiah and the supreme authority, Luke paints it as, well, they're having a conversation about this. And in verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So in this depiction, the lawyer answers, The educated mind answers and says, well, this is what the law says. Again, quoting Deuteronomy. And so he throws it out there, and Jesus says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. And so Jesus comes back at him and says, yes, that's exactly right. Love the Lord your God. That's the most important thing. That's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. That's what you need to do to be part of the kingdom of God. That's the most important thing. But in this educated, scholastic sort of debate-style interaction... The lawyer has a follow-up question, like lawyers always do, right? Anybody have some lawyer friends? Yeah, just, just don't talk sports with them. Don't get on any debatable topics. You'll be there all night. So in verse 29, he says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus a follow-up question. He says this, and who is my neighbor? 
And so Jesus throws out there, he's like, yeah, you're right, lawyer man. This is, this is what you think. And, and he says, okay, all right. So love, love God, got it. Love people, got it. Who are people, essentially? Define the terms for me. Define who my neighbor is for me. And Jesus is like, you open the door, buddy. Let's do this, right? And so starting in verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay, let's pause right there. So Jesus begins telling a story. Jesus told, did a lot of his communication through stories and through parables that had deeper layers of meaning that were culturally relevant to the people listening to them. So this was a really big deal for these people to hear him talking about this. Picking back up in verse 31, it says, A priest happened to be going, happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So there's this dude beaten and bloody, left for dead, and a priest walks down the road, sees him, goes to the other side, and keeps walking. And then in verse 32, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. And then Jesus probably pauses, lets it settle, lets it sink in a little bit what he had just said, because I'll explain to you in a second why this is such a huge deal. And in verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Which of these three do you think did the right thing? Which of these three do you think is the example that I want you to follow? And in verse 37, the lawyer lawyer replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do what that guy did. That's what I'm talking about. And so when Jesus does this, man, this this is so, so huge. This is so huge because essentially what Jesus says is that your neighbor is the other. Your neighbor is... Is, is, is them. The, the other, your neighbor is everyone. Because see, at the time, when Jesus answers his question, when Jesus comes back with this, there was some major, major cultural relevance to what he was talking about. From the road to Jerusalem to Jericho, just from the setting of this story, when he first comes out of the gate and starts talking about it, when he says a man was traveling from, from Jerusalem to Jericho where the story took place, this was a notoriously dangerous place. When he said this, everybody was like, Oh, I know where he's talking about. That's a big deal. That's like if I was saying, okay, so you're walking at like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning over at 6 in Woodward. You guys would be like, who's walking at 1 or 2 in the morning over at 6 in Woodward? Like, what are your intentions? What are you going to do? Not going to be, the the end of this story is not going to be good, right? Right out of the gate, he comes at it with that. It's a notoriously dangerous place. Check out what uh, Dr. Martin Luther King says about this. It's really cool. In the speech on the day before he died, um, uh, it, it's called I've Been to the Mountaintop. He kind of references this story in this setting. He says this, as soon as we got on the road, on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. In the days of Jesus, it, became, it came to be known as the bloody pass. 
And, at, and you know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and, wound, and wondered if robbers were still around. Or is it possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for a quick and easy seizure? And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? Now that's a pretty crazy perspective. These guys are passing by and they could potentially think, oh, this is a trap. And so their first thought is, what's going to happen to me? Not how can I help this person, which goes directly back to week two where we talked about being others focused. To be a good neighbor, to be the neighbor that God has called us to be is to be others focused. It's not to think, how is this adversely going to affect me? How is this going to be terrible for me? But it's thinking, that person needs help. I'm going to do it. I can do that. This one's mine. Exactly what we talked about last week. But this was an incredibly dangerous route to be taking in the first place. So it would not be uncommon for you to be traveling this road and see people beaten up, see, you know, corpses, see people bloody about to be in, you know, on the other side or whatever, right? It would not be nor it wouldn't be unnormal for you to experience these things. And so in Jesus's story, he throws out these three options. But now first, let me talk about this for a second. Um, the Samaritans and the Jews were like enemies, like a big deal enemies. They took turns like desecrating each other's temples. It was like very, very taboo. They were the direct opposite of each other at that time. And so for Jesus to be standing up, talking to these learned people, these educated folks, and saying that the Samaritan was the hero of the story was like a huge deal, huge culturally relevant. These guys are sitting here, they're probably all slunched back in their chairs going, can you hear what this guy is saying? Can you believe that he just said that, that he's even uttering the word Samaritan in our presence? Can you believe that he's talking about them in this light, saying that they did the right thing and that they helped someone and that's the kind of neighbor that I should be? Are you serious? Is this really what Jesus is doing right now? I can guarantee you 100% of the people there were pissed off. Guarantee. Because you don't say that. You don't do that. You don't give the Samaritan props. They're the enemy. They're the other. They're the ones that we're fighting with. They're the ones that have opposite beliefs as us. They're the ones that are different than we are. They're the taboo other that you stay away from. And so when Jesus is doing this, guys, he's dropping bombs. He's dropping bombs, and they're sitting there going, what? What? Their heads are spinning at this. And so Jesus' story these two people pass along the body before the Samaritan does. The first one is a priest. Now, the priest is like ultra respected in the Jewish community. He's like a big deal. He's a religious leader. He's admired. He's honored. People look up to him. It's a, a, a position of prestige. And then you got the Levite. You know what a Levite is? It's a special priest. So he's even more like, whoa, this is crazy. He, he, he performed the work of holiness in the temple. And so he's a really, really big deal. And so they're both honored and admonished and revered and respected to the Jewish people and the Jewish community. They're basically the guideposts for holiness. These are the people that you would look at and say, that's the way to live. That's the right answer. That's who we need to be like. They're the ones that set the bar for what's okay. And in Jesus' story, they both walk right by the bleeding, beaten body. Jesus says they walk right by it. It's almost as if Jesus is setting them up. It's almost as if Jesus is like, I 
got you guys right where I want you. I'm going to drop the biggest bomb. And so, he, he, you know, these two people groups, whenever he says, he starts this story and he says, so there's a road. And as soon as he says it, everybody knows. And he says, there's someone beaten and bloody laying on the side of it left for dead. Everybody's like, yeah, I've seen that. I've experienced that. I've been there. And then he goes, Jesus says, so a priest walks down this road. The listener's response is, oh, okay, so a priest, so we need to be like the priest. And, and Jesus is like, nope, not him. And so they're like, oh, okay, all right. And so they get back into the story, and Jesus goes, and so a Levite walks down the road. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, a Levite. Now, now it makes sense. You know, they're a little, yeah, okay, yeah. And Jesus is like, nope. They're like, what? what? And, then, and then Jesus goes, and so a Samaritan walks down the road. And they're all like, no, no, nah. <laughs> no, no. And Jesus is like, yep, that one. And so everybody there is like, whoa, no, whoa, no, whoa, what? No way. Their head is literally spinning at this point. Because like I said, the Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And so what Jesus does here is he paints a picture of the most extreme other that the Jews can imagine. He paints a picture of the furthest thing that they're thinking in their mind. The furthest thing that they've ever experienced. The furthest thing from what they think is going to happen. What they think the right answer is. Jesus paints the most intense us versus them that the Jews will feel and experience in that time. Because when he says Samaritan, it drums up all kinds of things inside of them. All kinds of things inside of them. And he says, yep, that's your neighbor. That one. That's who you're supposed to love. That's who you're supposed to serve. That's who you're supposed to have mercy and grace with. And not only does he do that, not only does he say have pity on the Samaritans, he uses the Samaritan as the hero of the story. He says, not only that, you need to be like that Samaritan. That's who you need to be like. Guys, this is like mind-blowing to the people listening to this. This is mind-blowing to the culture that's taking place when Jesus shares this. This is more than just a nice little feel-good story. Jesus is dropping bombs. Jesus is taking digs and giving jabs. This is like a real deal. This is like, okay, so this is like, Sam, you're saying that I'm a Christian. So you're saying that my neighbor, that I am to love and that I am to serve and that I am to have grace for is a Muslim? Is that what you're saying, Sam? I'm saying that's exactly what Jesus was saying. Exactly what Jesus was saying. Exactly. We actually have someone in our faith community who is sort of active in this and living this out. And she's, she's had some really cool experiences. So I want Amber to just share just a few minutes of your experience with this, of being that relational connection of like lines that are not typically crossed in the Christian community and in the Christian faith and all this. So just stand up and talk really loud. It might not be on the podcast, but we'll figure it out. T tell us about your, your experience and your situation. That's Amber Long. If you don't know her, your life is not as good. You need to know her and your life will be better. I promise. So like a couple months ago, yelling at my computer screen, like, oh, come meet them. I'm sure they're not as bad as we think they are. 
but you were like literally yelling, I would imagine. Okay, this is not like proverbial, this was like you were yelling. Okay, all right, just want to clarify. And then I stopped one day and I'm like, crap, I don't know any Muslim. I live like, I don't know, 40 minutes from Dearborn and know zero Muslims. So I kind of was proactive and met a couple and was invited to um, this one lady. Um, if you want more information, I can give it to you. She hosts dinners at her house to people who are not Muslim so that they can come and get to know them and ask them any question you want to ask. They started off the evening saying this, there is no question that's off limits. You can ask anything you want. We want you to know that we are not terrible. And, and it's the same thing over, over dinner. And when dinner was done, the, the whole, I think there was like eight or nine of us, the whole table started out as others. They were different people from different, um, different ethnicities, different political parties, different religions, different socioeconomic um, situations, different genders, different sexual identities. We started out as, well, you're that person, and you're that person, and you're that person, but by the end, we were all, none of us were others. None of us. And it, and it started by somebody who, who most people would normally say isn't other. It started by them saying, come and let's, let's, let's not be other. Not be other. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's stinking and crying. If you want more information about getting involved with that, talk to Amber. And if you don't want more information about that, talk to Amber because she's awesome anyway, okay? But I mean, that's, that, I, feel like, I feel like that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here when he brings up this Samaritan situation. You're saying, Sam, wait a second. You're saying that I'm, I'm a heterosexual. And so you're saying that my neighbor that I am to love and serve and have grace with is part of the LGBTQ community? Sam, is that what you're saying? Is that what Jesus was saying? Or I'm privileged and I'm accepted. And so you're saying that my neighbor that I'm to show love and grace and forgiveness and service to is the marginalized, the ones who are not as accepted and not as comfortable. But Sam, I'm Protestant. And you're saying that my neighbor that I am to love is the Catholic? Or vice versa. You're waiting for a joke there. I'm not going to do it. Or vice versa, that I'm Catholic and I'm supposed to be friends with the Protestant, or that I'm LGBTQ and I'm supposed to be friends with the heterosexual, or I'm a Muslim and I'm supposed to be friends with the Christian, or I'm a Republican, and so you're saying that my neighbor that I'm to love, serve, and, and honor, and show grace to is the Democrat, and vice versa, you're saying that these are the cases? Listen, I believe that that's part of what Jesus is saying here. I think that's a big part of what Jesus is saying here. I think he's saying kill the us versus them mentality. I think that he's saying kill the us versus them perspective. I think he's saying kill the us versus them way of life. Loud and clear in the Good Samaritan parable. If you're a Christian, get to know a Muslim. Kill the us versus them mentality. Because it's harder to demonize a person than it is an idea. Do you hear me? It's harder to demonize a person than it is an idea. It's easy to say, oh, Muslims are going to hell. They're the worst. Do you know any? Do you know any? If you're a Christian, get to know a Muslim. If you're a heterosexual, get to know a homosexual. It's easy to demonize an idea. 
It's easy to demonize a political stance or a religious view. It's easy to do that. It's much harder to do that when you know a person with feelings, with struggles, with a family, with a job, with kids. It's a lot harder to do that. If you're a Republican, get to know a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, get to know a Republican and not just to proselytize them and fight with them. Seek understanding. Seek understanding. If you're comfortable, get to know someone who's not. If you got it all figured out, get to know someone who doesn't. Get to know the other. If you're well-to-do and you're privileged, get to know people who are not well-to-do and not privileged. Get to know the marginalized and the outcast. Get to know these people and have some understanding and some grace. Because when you do this, your life outlook and your perspective shifts. Everything about who you are changes and shifts when you take on this perspective. It's no longer the question about where you stand. It's more about who you stand with. And it changes everything. It changes everything. The priest and the Levite, here's the deal, talking to a group full of people in church. The priest and the Levite, they allowed religion to justify them walking by someone who is in need and who is hurting. It was ritualistically unclean for them to, to, to interact with that. The priest and the Levite allowed religion to stop them from helping hurting people. And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not it. That's not it. And if you think that's it, you're missing the boat. You're missing the picture. There's so much more going on here. Jesus says, listen, get down and dirty. If people are in the trenches, meet them in the trenches. If people are broken, meet them in their brokenness. If people are hurting, meet them in their hurt and pain. If people are different from you, meet them on their side of the aisle. Don't make them come to you because it's not going to happen. So how do we be good neighbors? How do we be a good neighbor? We have a perspective of love. We love God and we love people. What's our protocol? Service. Being others-focused. Not focusing on ourselves and then others, but focusing on others first. How do we be a good neighbor? We have a position of mercy. We have a position of grace. Because the reality is we all have an other. Everybody has an other. Maybe it's not one of the ones that I highlighted. I just highlighted those because those are the hot topic ones. But all of us have an other. All of us have that other that's different than us, that's opposite us. And Jesus is saying, listen, guys, listen, that's the person you're to be a neighbor to. That's your neighbor. When I say love God and love people, those are the people I'm talking about. You notice in the lawyer's response in Luke that he doesn't even utter the name of the Samaritan? You notice that? Their names weren't even to be found on their lips. They were such enemies. It was so backwards. It was so different. He says, the one who had mercy on him. He doesn't say the Samaritan. Jesus said the Samaritan. He said the one who had mercy on him. So if you think that this excludes anybody that you have wrong feelings towards or unbiased opinions about, or biased opinions about, if you think this excludes anybody, I promise it wasn't as big of a deal as what Jesus was talking about in this parable. So don't try to justify 
your, your walls that you've put in place, saying, oh, everyone's my neighbor but them. Everyone's welcome but them. Everyone's loved but them. Everyone has grace and mercy but them. Because Jesus says, no, the Samaritan, that's your neighbor. So whoever the, whoever the Samaritan is in your heart, whoever the Samaritan is in your life, whoever the Samaritan is in your perspective, that's who God's calling you to love. That's who God's calling you to serve. That's who God is calling you to have mercy and grace with. That's hard, really hard, really hard, especially if we've been taught year after year after year after year after year to view a certain group a certain way or view a certain sin as worse than other sins or view certain theological stances as, as more important than other theological stances. That's hard, really hard. But I want to encourage you and challenge you to at least start that journey this morning. Listen to the words of Jesus and say, listen, the most important thing is to love God and love people. Well, which people? Yep, those people. The ones that you're thinking, no, not those people. Yep, those people. That's who Jesus is talking about. And that's who we're called to love and who we're called to serve and who we're called to have grace and mercy towards. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for your sharp, challenging word. God, I pray this morning that as we receive the story of the Good Samaritan and all the nuances and all the intricacies of the surrounding culture and the framework of this story and its implications to us, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts. God, I pray that you would open our minds that we would hold tight to you not to religion, not to what our pastor as a kid taught us, not to what our grandparents taught us, but we would hold tight to you. That we would hold tight to what you have to say about the issue. That we are called to love and to serve. To have mercy. God, as we're dealing with our other this morning, we're dealing with our Samaritans in our life. God, I pray that you would give us grace. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, understanding, and grace, and courage, and strength. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. And so if we ask the question, not where do we stand, but who do we stand with, if your answer to that is Jesus, then you're standing with the other because that's where Jesus is. If your answer is, who, I, who do I stand with? I stand with Jesus. Jesus is hanging out with the marginalized. Jesus is hanging out with the groups that you're thinking in your head. No, he's not hanging out there. That's exactly where he's hanging out. And so if your answer is, who do I stand with? I stand with Jesus. Maybe you need to rethink that. Are you really? Are you really? So I want to give you guys a few moments to just kind of do some business with God. Maybe be introspective and say, God, what are you doing here? What are you doing in me? What are you doing in my heart? What are you doing in my life? How can you change me? How can you work in me? We want to give you the opportunity to do that. So the band's going to lead us in another song. So if you want to stand and worship with us this morning. Thank you for listening to the Central Church Podcast. We hope this has encouraged you, inspired you, and you experience life change. 
If you are unable to attend our Sunday gatherings but still want to support this faith community, visit our giving page at centralchurch.cc. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.